Great, great to see you guys. Thank y'all for joining us this morning. I want to talk a little bit about what we call at City Light Church compassionate conviction. That's the idea that we want to speak the truth about Christ in the way that Christ would speak it. We want to speak the truth about Christ in the way that Christ would speak it, all right? And I, I want to just start by just kind of highlighting something that's kind of been, um, been uh, on my radar. It may, maybe it's been on your radar the last several days, but there was an incident on last week where a, where a group of kids from Covington, Kentucky, uh, were, were, um, were at a March for Life uh, rally in Washington, D.C., and at the same time that this March for Life rally was happening, there was a group of Native Americans and friends uh, there for what they were calling an Indigenous People March, um, and, and, they, and so they were gathered in, in r- roughly the same space as this group of K- uh, Kentucky, Covington, Kentucky High School kids were gathered, and then also there were uh, black Hebrew Israelites, and, and you'll, have to, you'll have to see me after service for a description about these guys, um, because it's a, it's, it requires a little, bit more than, a little bit more time than I got in my message to declare, uh, to kind of share with you what they're all about, but you have black Hebrew Israelites, you have Covington, Kentucky high school kids, and you have Native Americans, and they're all gathered in the same space, and, and the black Hebrew Israelites are, are um, doing some street evangelism, in a very um, harsh and combative way, and some in some particular sects of Black Hebrew uh, Israelites are known to um, um, handle their street evangelism like that. Not all of them, but some are, and so they were very combative, uh, very insulting. Um, you know, saying some really, really ugly things to the to this group of uh, predominantly white high school men and, and, and young men. And so these young men eventually uh, begin to shout back and they begin to kind of do battle chants and things of that nature. And in the middle of that group was this uh, Native American uh, man, elder, who had finished um, the indigenous people march and, and he began to uh, um, play his drum um, as a as a as a means of um, establishing peace amongst the two crowds was what he was later said uh, what was his was the reason he later gave for playing the drum and he starts playing the drum and he goes in between this this altercation between these two groups and then he starts moving and wading through the crowd of young uh, Con- uh, Covington Kentucky high school uh, young men and and there is a moment where there's a standoff between him and, and, and one of the young men, young, uh, young Covington, Kentucky, high men, and, and they just stand there, and he's playing his drum, and he's singing his song, and, and the kid is just sitting there, and he's not moving, and, and, and they're just standing off, standing off, standing off, standing off, and the video gets blasted to Twitter, right, and gets blasted to social media, and, and, there are a million different takes on this one video. And it's coming from all different sides and all different places. What was interesting about it was that what you, what you find is how easily you could literally pick whose side a person was going to take based on their other affiliations in life. Like if, 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 they, if they were typically watching Fox News and typically, you know, right-wing or leaning or conservative-leaning, then there was a 90% chance that they were going to take the side of the Covington High School kid. 
but if they were MSNBC watchers or if they were typically a little bit more liberal in their thinking and left-leaning, there was almost a 90% chance that they, they were going to take the side of the Native American. And what became interesting to me is just watching how this all unfolded and, and, and even I myself as a minority watched it and I immediately had a perception on it just based on my minority status, not really even based on the fact that I was watching or that I was looking at all the nuance and all the details. It was just my, my, the minority in me had a feeling, had an immediate feeling, had an immediate rush to judgment. And of course, it was leaning towards the minority. And so all of us were, were watching this and observing this and taking sides, not based on all the information, but just simply based on where we originally were leaning before the story even happened. And so the reality was is that our truth was not even being shaped by the facts. Our truth was being shaped by our biases. And so what's interesting is that when we talk about speaking truth in love, we have to really come to grips with this idea that love is sometimes biased. And if our love is biased, then our ability to speak the truth will be ineffective or speak the truth will be ineffective. And so we have to wrestle with that. And, and that's what I want to do this morning. I want to I wrestle with what that really means. To, to speak the truth in love. But before I do that, I just want to set the stage as to, uh, as to what's happening in this text. We, we discussed last week that Ephesians is broken into three chapters, or bro broken into two parts, three chapters each. Chapters one through three is, are about right doctrine and orthodoxy, as the theologians would call it, or that is to say what we believe. And it describes in chapters 1 through 3 who we are, and namely, we are the people that have been snatched out of darkness and brought into the marvelous light of the Son of Jesus Christ. That's covered in the earlier parts of Ephesians. And, and it also covers the idea that we are the people who were once separated, but now... Um, I'm sorry, separated and divided, but now through Christ, we've been brought together, no longer Jew, no longer Gentile, but instead one new family that has been forged through the blood of Jesus Christ and, 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 and the blood that Jesus spilled when he died on the cross and absorbed all the punishment that was destined and due to all of us for our sin and imperfection. And so we are the people who, who make up God's spectacular pride. And that prize is the church, the assembly made up of every nation and Jew and Gentile and inside, once insider, once outsider. And that, and that the church is that, that, that unique group that God is placing on display to wow and awe and amaze the entire universe. And that's all made possible through what Jesus did for us. That's what chapters 1 through 3 tell us. But, but chapters 4 through 6, however, are, are about right practice. They are about orthopraxy or what we do. Chapters 1 through 3 are about what we are and what we believe. Chapters 4 through 6 are about what we do and what we practice. And so it's in light of that that Paul opens chapter 4 with the words that we talked about last week, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, be who you are. Be who God has 
called you to be as the church. Be the beautiful, the holy, the set apart and set aside, the united and the glorious church that Jesus has already called you to be when he died and when he rose from the grave with all power in his hand. So one way that we do that is by leveraging the gifts that God has given us, which is Paul's point in verse 11, which we are located this morning. He gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Leveraging these gifts is one way to be who God has called us to be, to be who we already are, to be the beautiful, united, glorious church. There are different styles of leadership that he's given to his church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, pastors, and the teachers. And each one of them has a different function and a different way of functioning, rather. Uh, the apostle, for example, taking this from the Christ-centered expositional commentary series, the, they say that the apostle, in a technical sense, refers to the twelve, the original twelve. But in a general sense, it just simply means sent one. When you talk about the prophets, you're talking about more than future tellers. You're talking about foretellers, according to Christ-centered exposition commentaries. When you talk about evangelists, you're talking about those that are gifted in proclaiming the gospel and sharing the gospel. All of us have been called to evangelize, but the evangelist has a special gift for evangelism. When you talk about pastors, you're talking about those whose ministry um, is about shepherding and caring for the flock, the church. The Bible also calls them overseers and elders. And in addition to teaching, they watch the flock. They nurture the flock. They defend the flock. They protect the flock. They know the flock, and they sacrifice for the flock. And then finally, it defines the, 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 the teachers as those that are those that are uniquely called to teach. And it talks about the fact that pastors and teachers kind of overlap because pastors are called to teach, so all pastors must be teachers. But not all teachers necessarily have to be pastors. So all of these offices are gifts to the church, each carrying a unique gifting to serve and aid the church, which leads to the first question, why does God give us unique leaders as gifts to the church. And he spells it out for us. Paul does in the very next words that he uses. He says, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of Christ. And so God gives the church its leaders to equip the saints and to serve together in the building up of the church. So God uses these gifted leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to preach and to speak and to encourage and to teach in ways that lead towards people confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, but moving from consumer to contributor. Are you tracking with that? From consumer to contributor, he uses these leaders to raise up men and women who don't simply take in words in a consumeristic, me-centered fashion, but they actually allow those words to lead them towards selfless service where they are sacrificing of their own time, their own talent, and their own treasure to see Jesus exalted and his people edified and the lost world reached. 
So through these leaders, the people of God are transformed into the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus. They, they, become, they become servers of the poor and they care for the sick among us and they defend the vulnerable, both born and unborn. And they share their faith with those who don't know Christ and they guard our faith against false teachers and false prophets and they disciple the less mature Christians in the faith and they labor freely in their local church. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers among us are called to equip those who, are, who belong to the house of God to do these things. See, contrary to popular understanding that many folks carry about the local church, the work of the ministry is not primarily the responsibility of the leaders. The work of the ministry is primarily the work of the church or the responsibility of, its, of the church members. And the primary ministry for the leaders is to equip the members to do the work of the ministry. Does that make sense? So a lot of times we kind of carry this impression, we'll pay that guy and he'll go and do all the work. And, you know, and I'll come to church and I'll listen to him, right? And that, that's, not, that's not God's vision for the church. God's vision for the church is, yeah, maybe you pay that guy, but you're paying that guy to train you. Are, are, you, are you tracking with that? You're paying that guy to encourage you and to stir you and to, and to, and to, and to teach you what it means to labor in ministry. You're not, you're not paying that guy to go do it. You're paying that guy to help all of us go do it. Are you tracking? So that's why you appoint leaders so that they may train us effectively to go and do the work of the ministry. So God has, through Christ, created this magnificent church made of people who are being renewed and transformed more and more into his image and in his likeness in order to be who they were called to be. And he is using these called and gifted leaders in order to help the church get there. Now, how long will God use these leaders for this task? Paul tells us in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to measure the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul is saying that God in his sovereign wisdom has decided that, that this form of leadership is necessary for the ongoing equipping of the saints until we all reach complete and total unity full knowledge of God, completely unified with no hint of division in the faith and hope that we have in Jesus. So he's going to use this leadership until this comes about in the church. In other words, it's not stopping anytime soon. <laughs> Amen? Are you tracking with that? Fully mature in Christ to the point where our lives are completely identified in and focused on him. And so, verse 14, he tells us that, why, why is he doing it that way? Well, he's doing it that way so that we may no longer be children. He's doing it that way to mature us. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He's doing it that way. God is keeping this form of leadership in place until we are no longer immature. He's keeping this leadership in place until we are no longer gullible and no longer easily deceived by every form of teaching that shows up on our front doorstep. He's keeping that form of leadership in place until we are no longer fooled by every human philosophy that shows up in our lives and sounds good to our flesh. 
This leadership will remain in place and continue to serve in our building up until we are no longer held captive by the opinions of this world. And rather, we are captured by the truth concerning Christ. Until we no longer need validation from this world through his teachings and his ideals and his philosophies and his voices, but rather we are simply comfortable and sufficient in Christ and his calling in us and work for us. Now, this is where our value comes in, compassionate conviction. What is one of the ways that God is going to get us to that realized vision? How is he going to get us there? What is one of the primary ways God is going to get us to this place where we are fully matured people, no longer children, united, unified, holy, set apart, no longer focused on this world and its philosophies and its ideas, but instead focused on the truth and the will of God found in Christ Jesus for us. He says it in verse 15. Look there. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's how we're going to get there. And so the leaders... Right? God has given us these leaders throughout time and throughout history. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to aid us in maturation, to aid us in our maturing. And one of the primary ways that they will aid us in our maturing is by speaking the truth in love, according to Paul, and training us how to do the same. Maturing, maturation is going to come Because we are speaking, but not just speaking, speaking truth. And not just speaking truth, but speaking truth in love. Paul says that is the means to maturation, to growing up in the Christian faith, or at least one of the means. When you think about all those different leaders that we just named, what is one one thing they have in common? They all have to use words. They all have to communicate. They all have to talk. They all have to speak. So what is speaking the truth in love? Speaking the truth in love, like we talked about in in Compassionate Conviction, is simple. It's just the idea of speaking God's word, but speaking God's word in God's way. Speaking the truth concerning Christ, but speaking the truth concerning Christ in in the manner and way in which Christ would speak it. Is speaking the truth in love absent of conflict? Absolutely not. Jesus calls a group of Pharisees a brood of vipers. Well, John calls a group of Pharisees a brood of vipers. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, which is not better, by the way. And both were loving when they spoke. They were speaking truth in love. And so conflict sometimes does require, or or speaking the truth in love sometimes does require conflict, given the occasion, given the person, given the people. But not all the time. And that's where we are sometimes. That when we get on our social media and our Facebook, we say things about people that, just frankly, we, we probably wouldn't say in their face. And we feel liberated to say it behind the, behind the anonymity of a, of a laptop or behind the anonymity of a phone. We feel liberated to say things about people that we've never met, to speak harshly concerning them. 
or maybe even or maybe even amongst your friends you find yourself speaking boldly and harshly about people that you've never met that you know nothing about you don't know their heart you don't know you don't know their situation you don't understand what they have been through and what they're going through and yet you feel liberated to say things in manners that are not healthy and do not contribute to their well-being Speaking the truth in love is always looking to speak from a place of love. Are you understanding that? In other words, in other words, you know, and I can't I can't remember the exact quote, and I apologize for not being able to get it to you this uh, this morning. But but there but there's a quote that that I love that basically says, before you prepare to speak concerning someone or to someone, you should prepare or you should ask yourself or you should challenge yourself concerning the love that you have for that person. In other words, it's probably, it's, it's, not, it's not a healthy thing to speak to someone or about someone that you really have not challenged yourself concerning your love for that person. And most of the time, we speak, we speak all sorts of different things about people that, frankly, we don't love. And thus, it's hard for the truth to come out in love. Does that make sense? So why should we speak the truth in love? Well, one is because it's a mark of maturity, gospel maturity. It says in verse 15 and 16 that we are, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We are to grow up. Well, how are we growing up? Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. And so speaking the truth in love is a demonstration and a method towards gospel maturity. It helps us grow up. That's why we should speak the truth in love. When we speak the truth in love, we are demonstrating a, a level of maturity that is often elusive in modern-day Christianity. James, and, and, uh, the, the, the half-brother of Jesus, James writes in his letter, James chapter 3, he writes that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. He's, he, basically, he's talking about the idea that people that learn how to speak, learn how to control their tongue, are mature people. Does that make sense? And so a demonstration of immaturity is our lack of control over our voice, lack of control over our words. But it's also not just a mark of gospel maturity, it's also a demonstration of gospel defense. In Ephesians chapter 4, again, verse 14, it says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. He says, without speaking the truth in love, we get tossed by all sorts of different philosophies and all sorts of different ideas that appeal to our fleshly desires. But notice it's not just speaking truth that guards us and defends us against false ideas and false doctrine. But it is speaking the truth in love that guards us against false ideas and false doctrines. See, a lot of times people, you, there, there are Christians that will go out on the street corner and they will speak truth. But nobody will embrace it. Why? Because it is not truth in love. And so it will be rejected outright. And so there is no defense with just truth. Right, do you understand? The defense comes when the Christians are speaking truth 
in love towards falsehoods. But also as an imitation of Jesus. Don't miss that the method of maturation, speaking the truth in love, and the mark or, or the, 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 the demonstration of gospel defense, speaking the truth in love, is a direct imitation of our Lord and Savior. It is in lockstep with Jesus Christ. To know our Savior is to understand the role of speech in his work, the role of words in his work, and to know the commitment to love when he speaks. He's the ultimate fulfillment of speaking the truth in love. Remember that the first recorded act of God was an act of words. Remember, in Genesis chapter 1, God spoke, let there be light. Remember that Jesus Christ is declared the very word of God. In John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Later in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is literally called the word. Our salvation in Christ, remember and recall, is tied to what? Words, speech. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says what? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, confess words, you shall be saved. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. Verse 13 in Romans chapter 10 says, for everyone who calls audible voice, words, Speaking. So speaking is very much a part of the way God operates in salvation. Christ operates in salvation. But not just speaking, speaking the truth. Remember, recall that Jesus himself says that I am the way, that I am the truth, and I am the life. Remember that when Jesus taught, was, was talking to Pilate in John chapter 18, he says, you say that I am a king before this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In other words, he's saying that when I speak, I speak truth. And so we know that he is a speaking God, but we know that he is true. He is speaking the truth. But then we also know that he is not only speaking and not only speaking the truth, but he is speaking the truth in love because John chapter 1 tells us that not only did he come in grace, or not only, not only did he come in truth, but he came in grace in truth. It tells us in, in, in John chapter 1 verse 17 that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not only did Jesus speak truthful words, but he spoke truthful words from a place of grace and love and compassion. And so when we speak the truth in love, we are imitating our Savior. Does that make sense? Isaiah the prophet once prophesied about this Savior in this way. He said in Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 12, quotes Isaiah by saying, A bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. In other words, he deals and handles us with truth, but with gracious, compassionate, gentle truth. Are you tracking with that? Why should we, or why are we so committed 
to speaking to people in ways that Christ has not spoken to us. Why are we so committed to speaking to people in ways that our Savior has not spoken to you? Can you imagine if Jesus dealt with us the way we deal with each other when we speak? What a salvation walk that would be, right? Talking about waking up and going to bed miserable every day. You low down, no good for nothing, so-and-so, so-and-so. Can't believe you did that again, again, again. How many times have I told you about this? Can you imagine what kind of Christian life that would be? Why are we so committed to speaking to people in ways that Christ has not spoken to us? Why can we be so uncompassionate when we are loved by such a compassionate God? We imitate him when we speak. So let us imitate him well. Paul Tripp talks about this ideal of speech and its power. He tells this story of his mom, and his mom has a big family, 10 brothers and, and sisters, and their family, they, he, says that his, he said that his family is, or her family is what our culture would call a classic dysfunctional family. You know, they don't, they don't like one another very much, but they're committed to family reunions even though they don't like each other. <laughs> we got plenty of people that know what I'm talking about, right? And so, she, and so he talks about these creepy sort of gatherings where they get together and they, and, they, and they eat and they drink 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 until, and then they just drink and they drink and they drink and they drink and they drink until, until they're drunk. And, and, and he talked about this one gathering where his mom was involved um, in, in sharing the gospel with one of her siblings and didn't realize that one of her brothers had gotten very drunk. And so he was in the other room, and, and he was saying all sorts of sexually perverse things about women. And his mom realized that as she was sharing the gospel with one of her siblings, she realized that he was talking uh, with his little brother and him in the room. And so she immediately ran in there and got uh, Paul and his brother, pulled him out, yanked him to the car. She was so mad that, her, that, his, that her, her brother was saying all these crazy things in their presence. And she said this as they went to the car. She stuffed them in the car. She drove away and she said, Paul and Mark, I want to say something to you and I want you to never forget it. There's nothing that comes out of the mouth of a drunk that wasn't there in the first place. Now, I want you to hear that, not because of the alcohol. I want you to hear that for another reason. He continues, in this, he continues and he says this. The alcohol didn't create the sexual perversion that came out of my uncle's mouth. He was actually thinking those thoughts in his sobriety. What did the alcohol do? It loosened the lips. And when his lips got loose, out came the heart. And here's what you and I need to understand. Listen, word problems are heart problems. Word problems are not vocabulary problems. Word problems are not technique problems. Word problems in their essential form are heart problems. So as we 
kind of put a bow on this and start trying to close this ideal of what does it mean to be compassionate, uh, compassion, or to walk in compassionate conviction and to speak the truth in love. Here's the reality that we have to deal with is that one of the reasons why we don't speak the truth with compassion and love towards those whom we are speaking to is because we don't carry that much compassion and love towards those whom we are speaking to. Luke chapter 6, it says that for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear bad uh, good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart does the mouth speak. There are some things that I would say to random Joe on the street that I would never say to Candy Crawford. Got too much on the line. You tracking? Lo love her with everything that I have. And so she really, she really has to work me for me to say something crazy to her. Right? And I got to really work her. And I have. Just, just for the record. I have. But I have to really work her for her to say something, you know, for her to say something back to me. Because, because the love that we have for each other is, is literally shaping our words. And so, and, so, and so when I begin to find myself with a loose tongue, then, then it's not just simply that, I, that, that I'm struggling with words. I got, I got to ask myself, what's going on in my heart right now? What's going on in me? That, I'm, that, I'm, that, I'm, that I feel so liberated to say things that I should not be saying to people that I, that I say I love. And maybe I do love them, but, but, but what's going on in me that's causing me to love them so little to say the things that I'm saying in that moment? You track me with that. Why, why, why is it that my truth is so, so gracious for, for my African-American brothers or so gracious as a, as a white man or woman for my white brothers and, and, and so loose for my African-American brothers or as a black man or woman, so loose for my Caucasian brothers and sisters? Why, why is that? What's going on? Well, I can tell you. It's because when you see that African-American brother or you see that white brother as a white brother, you identify with them. It's like you're looking in the mirror at yourself and you love you. But maybe you don't love the white brother as much as you love you or the black sister as much as you love you. And so it's easy to brush them off. And to assume the worst and to say the craziest things about them. See that, and see that, 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 that is exactly what was happening for the past, the past week or so. When, when all the minorities had their opinion and they were saying all sorts of things about the Covenant Eye kids, and, and, and the majority group had their opinion and they were saying all sorts of ugly things about the Native American man, that's exactly what was happening. It wasn't just simply a misuse of words. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was a misuse of the heart. But here's the good news. God came to change hearts. 
Christ came to change hearts. His death and his, his burial and his resurrection was, was for the forgiveness of our sins and for our cleansing and our redemption, but it was also for heart transformation. The prophets speak of the day that when Christ comes, they, they say that, that, that he's going to take the heart of stone and he's going to snatch it out and he's going to replace it with a heart that feels, a heart of flesh. He's going to give you a new heart. And he's going to place his spirit in you, and that spirit is going to be working on that heart. And so the people that are in the Lord, the people that are in Christ, they have the opportunity to have that heart shaped. And as that heart is shaped, those words will be shaped right along with it. But you have to yield. You have to yield. You have to submit yourself to Christ. You have to plead with him regularly, to guard, not just your tongue, but to guard your heart. And you have to study and ask yourself, what is Jesus saying? How does Jesus speak? Read those words and read the manner in which he speaks and let that speech shape your speech. Because we got a world to share the gospel with. We got a world to preach to. We got a world to to tell about the goodness of Jesus Christ. But folks, we can't tell them without love. Truth ain't truth without love. And love ain't love without truth. We have to have both. And we have to communicate both. As a single package. Amen? So may we go, and may we go with the power of the Spirit. May we go with hearts that are being transformed so that we, when we go, can speak, but not just speak, but speak truth. And not just speak truth, but speak truth in love. Amen.